Hey everyone, today's guest is Ellen Marie Bennett, most often known as EB, and she is the founder of the incredible company called Headley and Bennett, most known for its impeccable, stained, hot, uh, messy, resistant aprons. I live in them in my house, my kids as well, and I'm so excited to talk to her about her journey today. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you, Rebecca. Excited to be here. Coming off the baby train as of a month Ooh. ago. Oh, you're a month out. We're going to, I want to dive into that too. Uh, what it's like to probably take a maternity leave or not as a founder. But first I'd love to go back to the beginning of your story. Cause I know that you were in Mexico city when you were 18, it was post culinary school. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit about your trajectory there and how that actually ended up being the inspiration for your company. Yeah, definitely. So you know, I have always kind of leaped into life, not always knowing exactly where I'm going to land, but just going with my guts. And I have always been very drawn to my Mexican culture. I'm half Mexican, half English. And when I turned 18, I told my mom, I was like, I'm going to go to Mexico for a little bit. I don't exactly know everything that's going to happen, but I know it's the right thing to do. I didn't quite fit into everything my friends were doing in Los Angeles. And they were all going off to, you know, nice schools. And I, you know, I was being raised by my incredible single mom and it was just, I had a different life than they did. And so I went to Mexico planning to be there for two months and I ended up staying for four years. And it really helped me find my sea legs in life because I had nothing when I showed up to Mexico and I had to find a job. And my mom was like, why? I'm not going to support you while you go on this wild adventure. You have to figure it out on your own or come back. And so it was my way or, you know, coming back to my mother's house. So I had to make it work. And I made a bunch of things happen out of nothing, which I think is, you know, the the beginnings of any entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, I called a bunch of people. I got random weird jobs, like announcing the lottery for Mexico and, Uh, being a booth babe at trade shows and just doing all these crazy things that when I was doing it at the moment, my friends were like, what the hell are you doing in Mexico? And I didn't know what I was doing in Mexico, but really I was earning my way. I was finding my way. I was building something out of nothing with my own hands. And it was not pretty. It was like, it was just real. And uh, after being there for, for this period, I really felt like, okay, I can make something that is my own. And I don't have to have someone else give it to me. I can actually like bloom it into existence. And, and, and I proved to myself that I could do it, um, in, in a small scale. Right. But, uh, lived there for four years, finished everything. I was actually just going to culinary school when I, when I got there, I decided to do it there. And by the time I was 22, I kind of looked up and had established this whole life there. I had my own house. I was making a ton of money. I had a boyfriend. I had friends. I had a whole world. And, and I was 22. I was like, that can't be it. What else am I going to do? Like, I need to, I need to be able to do more. And so I chose to kind of put that all away and come back to the United States with my, you know, culinary career and start working at restaurants, which was what truly what I wanted to do. And, and that was kind of a crazy thing too, because you go through all that journey of building something out of nothing and then letting it go and starting all over to actually stick to what I really wanted to do, which was 
cooking uh, was was another big scary move. But that was kind of the inception of my entrepreneurial roots and beginning and scary leaps into the world without knowing where you're going to land and then landing, but also falling on my face 8 million times while I was there too. So when you confronted um, switching and and saying, okay, I'm going to blow this whole life up. I'm, I'm leaving to, you know, from my sort of somewhat of, I'm going to say somewhat of a comfort zone. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's right. <laughs> that's um, right. <laughs> What was going through your head? Was it just, okay, I'm diving head first? Was there fear? And how did you sort of get over that hump? How did you sort of say, okay, here, I'm starting all over again? I think it took me realizing and looking around and seeing that, A, I had made it myself, right? I had created that little world for myself and no one else had helped me and my parents weren't there supporting me. And I I had nothing when I arrived. And yet when I looked up at 22, I had built all this stuff. And so it was kind of in a reminder to myself that I did that and that I used my own bare hands and mind and everything else to like build this. And then also recognizing that this quasi comfort zone, right? Because I I wouldn't call it the, the best life, but it was so much better than when I had arrived. I thought, if I did this and I'm comfortable right now and I'm only 22, what does that mean for the rest of my life? And that was kind of a aggressive statement to make to yourself when you're 22 years old, but I didn't like the idea of being too comfortable and it already felt too comfortable. Does that make sense? It was like, this is too easy. I'm 22. There's got to be more to this. I can do more with it. And I kind of like zoomed my head out and decided that there was more to it out there. And living in a foreign country by yourself when you're 18 years old, is it's no walk in the park. And I just basic things like going to the bank, you had to stand in line. You they didn't have ATMs where you deposited checks into the ATM. You had to stand in line for an hour and talk to a teller. It was just very kind of bureaucratic to get anything done and old school and took forever. And, you know, it took me almost a year to become a Mexican citizen because there was so much jumping hoops and all this crazy stuff. Like everything was hard in Mexico. So if it was so hard and I did it, why couldn't I do it in the US? And because I found my sort of personal sea legs, when I came back to LA, I looked around and literally it felt like nothing had changed. Everything in Los Angeles was sort of the same. The only thing that was different was me and my perspective and my uh, willingness to try new things and to build other stuff. And a, a lot of friends from school were just sort of like doing the same thing. And I had so much kind of energy and drive that I had created and grit from falling on my face in Mexico and figuring shit out that I just arrived to LA with this newfound energy. And that's when I began my journey of going to a bunch of restaurants to get a job. And while I went to one of these restaurants, I started working at Providence, which is a two Michelin star spot here in the city. And that is where I began Headley and Bennett. So if I, if I hadn't gone and done that whole culinary career and then done all these weird jobs, which made me comfortable to walk into any spot and ask for a job in LA, I wouldn't have gotten to a place where I was in an environment where I could start this company that is now Headley and Bennett. And so it's a very zigzaggy path, 
but that's the real path. And I think that most people actually go on a zigzagged path. They just, we hear more about the straight and narrow path of like, you graduate from college and then you buy a house and then you, you know, the house has a white picket fence and then you get married and then you have kids and, and it's, it's ziggy. It's way ziggier and zaggier than that. At least it was for me. No, I think it is ziggy and zaggy, like you say. And I think, you know, people in order or in some ways I find like in trying to understand something, they want to see the straight path. Yeah. You know, and so they'll tell that story, but I think you, you like me moving somewhere at 18 with no plan, um, (laughs) is definitely as, uh, going the other direction from our peers. Um, you know, (laughs) not only that, and then, and then we actually knew what we wanted to do, which I find is also rare. You know, when you meet a 22 year old today, they're like, I don't know what I want to do. And yeah. How did you know? I'm like, I don't know. I just knew, which I'm assuming you felt similar. Well, what's funny is that I, I had a very clear path of what I wanted to do until I realized that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. And I was willing to be okay with that new truth, which I think is another part of an evolution in an entrepreneur. I, I knew that I wanted to work in food. I knew that I wanted to be in the culinary space. I thought in my mind, it was going to be in the shape of restaurants and what turned out after having worked at Providence and while, you know, kind of paying my dues, working 12, 13 hour shifts at this insanely epic, beautiful establishment here in LA, I realized like, I love food and I love everything about it, but it's not everything I imagined in my mind. But if I hadn't gotten that experience, I wouldn't have known that. Like if I had just jumped from culinary school to I'm going to get investors and start a restaurant, I would have skipped the experience part and kind of dived into this other layer that I turned out I didn't actually love. And so while I was earning my my way up the totem pole of, of chefhood, if you will, I discovered that like our uniforms sucked and everybody looked like shit in the kitchen and I wanted to make that better. And hence the idea of Headley and Bennett was born. But it took me being willing to say, okay, maybe I don't love restaurant land as a restaurateur and as an owner as much as I thought I did in my head but I really love this idea of making people look and feel inspired and amazing. And I'm sure similar with you, like you started with bags, but now you have this entire ecosystem and world with Rebecca Minkoff, but it began with a bag. And so for me, it began with cooking, but the cooking fed to aprons and the aprons has now turned into this like whole kitchen gear company, uh, direct to consumer brand. That's very different from what it from where I began, but yeah, it was, it was even zaggy figuring that out for me. And I, I was okay with, uh, the uncomfortableness of it and letting go of ideas I had along the way, which is freaking hard. It is hard. I think sometimes we get so steeped in these, these ideas that are so great that we don't want to get rid of. Yeah. And then sometimes you need to get rid of them to move faster on what you already have, which is, is not an easy feat. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Let's, no, let's, let's talk about the launch. You had the idea for the apron. You knew the ones you were wearing were sucking. They were falling apart in the kitchen. Take me from idea to product and what that was like. Yeah, it was, it was fast, fast and furious. I had thought of it. It was in my mind. I was floating around with this thing, just being like, this is what I, I like this. Where, how could I do it? And then literally 
a freaking opportunity just landed in front of me a few weeks later. One of my chefs said to me, Hey, there's a girl, she's going to make us some aprons for the restaurant. Do you want to buy one? And I was like, wait a second. Are you fucking kidding me? Like there's someone out there with my idea. This is insane. I was like, no, this can't be it. And I just blurted out before I had truly processed what was happening in my head. I was like, chef, I have an apron company. I'll make you those aprons. What's she charging you? What's her turnaround? I'll do it faster and better. I got this. And he was like, what? You're a line cook in my kitchen. Like, what do you mean? And I said, no, I've been, I've been working on this. I have this concept of how it's going to be. I absolutely can do it. And I just out of sheer willpower convinced the guy to give me the order. And out of the blue, I had an order of 40 aprons and that's literally how the company began. I had no sewers, no sewing experience, no business plan, no, no business doing what I had just leaped into. And now my actual job was on the line too. So everything was kind of, all the chips were on the table and I had to figure it out. And he's like, okay, cool, go go do it. And, uh, I have to tell you those first aprons sucked so bad. They were really quite brutal. When I turned them in, I thought they were amazing. And then he was like, these aprons don't even work. And I had to then with my first customer now on the line, that's also my chef and my boss, (laughs) I had to fix them on the fly and make the straps better and do all these adjustments. Uh, because obviously I wasn't testing materials and fabrics and straps and hardware. And it wasn't until they actually used them in the kitchen that they started realizing that certain things were wrong. And I had to fix those first ones. So it wasn't even some successful first go at it. It was like a crash landing that exploded. And, you know, maybe other people would have thrown in the towel, but I had such an adrenaline over the fact that I had showed up, said I could do something, didn't even know if I could, somehow sort of crash landed the the vehicle. I was like, this is further than zero and I'm not going to give up now. So I'm not just going to keep on going, even if this hurts. And I just kept it rolling because the adrenaline pushed me forward and the enthusiasm of making something that somebody out there actually wanted something I was making was so exciting. I couldn't stop. What I love in in talking to so many founders is I can see so many similarities, but it's it's eerie to me that we both did this at 18 and we were both liars. And that's how we got our start. <laughs> it's like when yep. Jenna asked me if I designed bags, I just lied and I said, Yeah, I'll get it to you, you know? And so oh I love God. that we told these things and it's like figure it out later, which I think some people, you know, especially women want everything to be perfect and they want mm-hmm. it to be all wrapped in a bow before they're yep. willing to put it in the world. And I'm some, you know, my mom was like, don't encourage people to be liars. <laughs> I'm like, well, guess what? Sometimes it gets shit done. exactly you just kind of like have to crack the door open and then the truth will flow in I mean I literally wrote a book called dream first details later and that's the whole idea was I had this dream and I didn't have any of the details sorted out but I felt that my sheer chutzpah and willingness to try was going to get me further than not trying at all and I do think that sometimes people don't try because they think they're going to fail and really They just should have tried. And if they failed, guess what? They were further than if they didn't try because now they learned something and they have some resilience to show for it.
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you, you fixed the first batch. Yes. Then what came next? How did you actually get it? Did you start getting it professionally made? Did you have to get investors? What was kind of I mean, the next if, step of your path? professionally made means my one sewer in Compton sewing out of his <laughs> living room, then yes, that was professionally made. But no, from there, I was so excited that I hadn't lost my first customer, that I had fixed the situation, that I was being entrepreneurial, that I I, I was... I was hooked. I was like, I can't stop this. This is so exciting. I could change the culinary world. Everybody will be wearing my aprons. People will look and feel amazing. And and just for some context, like I'm a runner and I've run a bunch of marathons. And that was part of the idea was when I started running, I put this outfit on and I was like, I'm a freaking runner now. And I thought if people could wear my uniforms and my aprons and my chef gear and feel like they are you know, a chef or a cook and feel more dignified and proper, they could execute better because they look and feel the part, then I could literally change this environment. That was, you know, a rough one. And and that was the, the whole concept. So from there, I started showing up to places where chefs would go, right? So I started going to farmer's markets and food events. And I would tell my chef, Simarustia, I'd say, can I go work this event that you're going to attend? I see that we have this event on the calendar. Can I go work Pebble Beach food and wine with you? You don't have to pay me. I'll get myself there. I'll drive up after work uh, to be there on Saturday morning so that I can help you over the weekend. And he was like, I mean, yeah, sure. And that's uh, you know where I met Daniel Balud and Tyler Florence and all these amazing people. And I would talk to them on the line, which is essentially literally like a row of stoves and, you know, cutting boards. And I'd be standing next to Daniel Balut. I'd be like, hi, I'm Helen. I'd love to show you what I'm working on. I'm working on these aprons. And, you know, I want your input because we're still in the like hatched stage of it and trying to figure out how exactly they all work. But I want your thoughts. Will you tell me? And they'd be like, sure. And so then I'd stop by their restaurants and then they would say, I didn't even think you were going to come. I'm like, oh my God, of course I'm going to come. But everything was just so old school and face to face and me just talking to people and finding opportunities and then showing up. And then, you know, they'd get so excited about what I was doing because it actually made sense. And our uniforms really did suck that they would be bought in and they would help me develop the product and then they would buy product from me and then they would wear it and then other chefs would see it. And so it just became this sort of cult following within the chef space. And one chef would tell another chef and he'd see another chef at an event and they'd see this little patch that I put on the chest 
that's the shape of an and sign or an ampersand. And that became the emblem and the symbol that other people recognized as this stamp of quality. And obviously they also looked good. I was using beautiful denims and brass hardware instead of shitty polyester cotton. And uh, I just took it from there as a made to order business, making aprons for chefs. And I did that for a few years, no investors. I just invested every penny I made back into the company, never spent more than I made. And I did it the old school way. And it was slow as hell compared to what you would call the success of other people. But to me, it was my opportunity to learn how to actually run a company that was making money versus just like pretending like you're making money and you're really not. So I feel like female founders are being set up to fail a lot of the times because they think they need to go raise money versus you know, again, how you and I grew our business. It was slower, but we retained majority ownership, but like every dollar went right back into the company. Like I'll never forget. I was working one of my sample sales and we were making a lot of money, but it's not like I got to see any of that, that cash. And I'll never forget this guy being like, I wonder how rich Rebecca Minkoff is. She's making so much money. And I want to be like, do you know, I make $23,000 a year and I just scam my roommates for, for con ed. (laughs) Um, I didn't say that to him because I didn't want him to be like, why am I buying this woman's bags again? Um, But I feel like you put in the work, you went out of your comfort zone and you then said, okay, I'm going to grow this on my own. And I think there's so much to be learned by that. Absolutely. And, and there's no shame in it either. And I, I have talked to other women that are like, I just, you know, it's, I could just, go raise money and then I'll have everything I need. And really everything you need is, you don't know what you need when you're starting a business. Even if you have $50 million in your bank account, like there's so much to be learned by trial and error. And I feel like those first few years where no one was noticing what we were doing were such a gift to me because I could fail and learn Mm -hmm. and get back up and there was no judgment or, you know, somebody writing a story about it. It was just me in life learning how to manage a deal better, you know? I mean, can you underline what you just said? Because it is so important that we get that time and space to fuck up and fail. And you don't have a VC or a private equity firm or some some investor breathing down your neck for every mistake. And I think it's it's totally normal that we're going to mess up and fail. And yeah. No one talks about how often that will be and and that it doesn't go away, right? Exactly. Exactly. And when you talk to really, really successful people, a lot of them have had multiple businesses that failed before they started their one business that crushed it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think about that a lot. And I think about how, you know, I got these first few years of Headley and Bennett to be kind of my testing ground and learning my, getting my MBA, if you will. But what a gift it would have been if at 22, I had, you know, two other businesses that I started in Mexico and then I failed at them and botched them and then began Headley and Bennett or worked at a company where I got to learn and fail on that too. And and that's another thing. It's like, I love when people ask me, how did, how did you do it? And what would you do differently? I mean, I would have loved to have worked at an organization that, uh, you know, was making clothing and I could have learned, but I didn't, I did it a very hard way with like a machete in hand going into the forest and carving my own path, which, you know, I love that I did that, but for other people out there, if they don't want to do it this way, 
go work somewhere, learn, like take minimum wage, do an internship, work for free, like do whatever you need to do to be around people that know what the hell they're doing in some field or are also, or are amazing at it and learn from them and then do it your own way. Right. And it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Just wanting to jump to, I'm making $200,000 a year, you know, working at this company, like you got to kind of find your way there and, and, avoid the entitlement of like, well, I deserve this. It's like, no, mm-hmm. you deserve experience. And that's truly the long-term vision. So when I was working at Providence, I was making $10 an hour and I was so happy and honored to have that job. I, You would have thought I was making $400,000 a year there with the enthusiasm with which I showed up to work. But it's because I knew that by working in this location, I was you know, learning about grit and resilience. I was learning about the best ingredients in the world. And I was being exposed to some of the best chefs out there. That's priceless. You you can't put a dollar figure to that. So that's kind of part of the journey too, is being willing to just show up and do stuff for free to learn. A hundred percent. I think the hardest working people know that and see that. And then they're noticed by other people versus some, some youth that I dare not name that, you know, expect to be the CEO or get a, get a hundred thousand dollars after graduating. I mean, unless you're going to work for the stock exchange. Yeah. Um, I think it takes that grit. So I'd love to talk about how you've expanded and the book and some of your recent collaborations and where you see the company going in the future. Totally. So as I mentioned earlier, it really began as this kind of custom made, custom made to order business. So we had no inventory and we were essentially selling to other restaurants. Um, And as we did that for a few years, it helped us craft the core product very, very, very effectively because every chef was my focus group. And for that, we started looking around and realizing there's so many of these chefs that are, you know, now on Food Network and being on different shows and chefs were really at that time starting to become famous and we were their designers. And it was exciting that all of these people at home were now watching these chefs. And I thought, holy cow, if we could bring the same sort of energy and enthusiasm around, you know, how you show up in the kitchen to home cooks everywhere, this is a whole new world that we could go tap into. And so the home cook market became my next, you know, adventure to go after. And that included, you know, bakers, grillers, pot, everybody that was making something outside of a professional space. And so it ended up becoming, you know, the land of direct to consumer, but it took a few years to kind of figure out how to jump from being a business to business business to being a direct to consumer business, which really just means selling stuff online. Um, But we had built this beautiful kind of community in the chef space. So I took it over and used the foundation of that and the credibility of having people like David Chang and Martha Stewart and, you know, all these incredible chefs wearing our stuff. A home cook was now like, well, I want to be like that. It's like Serena Williams wearing Nike. You want to wear Nike because you feel legit. And so I wanted to have the home cook feel legit too. So we started doing collaborations to bridge that gap. And for me, it was a very scrappy way to do it, but it actually really paid off. I was like, how do I get into other audiences without an entire supply chain and network that I can do that with? Well, I'll team up with bigger brands 
that are doing really cool things that aren't exactly in the cooking space. So one of them was Madewell. Another one was Vans. Another one was Topo Designs that makes these like super cool backpacks. And every time we did a collaboration with these different brands, people were like, wait a second, that's an apron company. Why are they collaborating with them? Like, that's kind of cool. And it just pushed us further and further out of this box of apron company for chefs only. And it gave us, gave us street cred and it just allowed us to see how other people were doing things. And it got us in front of other eyeballs. And um, after doing that for a handful of years, it was working. We had bridged the gap. We were now like 50% direct to consumer, 50% business to business, we were like, okay, this is it. And then COVID hit. And it was like the whole world kind of exploded. Uh, We transitioned our entire universe to making face masks and ended up making about a million face masks in 2020 uh, through like a buy one, donate one model. And while we did that crazy shift and transition, so many customers, I'm talking about like Hundreds of thousands of new people discovered Headley and Bennett because of our face mask and they happened to be home cooks and it fully kind of completed the the cycle, if you will, of becoming a direct-to-consumer brand. So now we're 80% direct-to-consumer, which happened very rapidly over 2020. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, I, I know a lot of brands had to pivot, but the fact that you were able to pivot so quickly is incredible. Uh, and obviously you stayed alive, your company did well, and then you wrote a book. Let's talk <laughs> about the book. <laughs> you wrote a book and you had a baby. Yeah, so yeah. I think everyone's going to want to know at this point, what do you do to stay sane? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Survived COVID, uh, transitioned to D to C. Um, no, that was, uh, I, I, I sort of glazed over that. That was the hardest year of my life. And it was incredibly insane to do that so quickly. And uh, I think most people thought I was crazy when I decided to turn our 16,000 square foot factory into a face mask facility. But in the end, it all worked out. And um, it was, you know, for the good of our community at first, and then it turned into an entire shift in our, in our business model, which was not part of the plan at all. There was no plan. It was just like survive and and help, (laughs) survive and help and figure out what to do next. So after all of that, I was um, actually already in the middle of writing my book when COVID hit. So the last chapter in the book is called Wake Up and Fight, uh, which is also what our our face masks are called. And it's the the closing of a crazy, of a crazy journey. Um, So I, I wrote the, I finished writing the book through COVID summarized the whole crazy ass journey of that pivot I just described to you. And then uh, January, February happened of this year after all of COVID. And I was looking around at my life and, you know, I'm now 33 and now I'm 34. And I was like, I've been waiting forever for this perfect moment to have a kid when X happens and when Z happens and when I do this and when Headley and Bennett gets sold. And after having the whole world kind of explode on us last year, I thought, no, I want to do this now. And so I decided that somewhere around February and then somewhere around the end of February, I was pregnant. It was very fast. I didn't realize it was going to be that fast. Um, and, And so I, you know, 
did that and just had my baby about a month ago and launched the book in April and, you know, continued to evolve the business this year. I took on partners last year. Like it's been a wild, wild two years. (laughs) Wow. It, It is, it is wild. And it is, it is a testament to the last chapter of your book, wake up and fight. And I feel like we have to do that as founders, as entrepreneurs, even if we're not founders and entrepreneurs every day to get what we want. And you've clearly, clearly done that, even though maybe the first month or two of this new baby was a bit of your back on the ground. Yes. As this we happened to all of us. Our knees. <laughs> In the most beautiful, epic way. I just... I, it's absolutely amazing. Women are incredible. I have such respect for mothers everywhere. You know, founders are not just to do this makes you an entrepreneur. Truly. You have no roadmap. You don't know how to do things. The learning curve is very steep and you better figure it out right now while there's a little, little mini human screaming at you to move faster. (laughs) If that isn't entrepreneurialism, I don't know what is. That's true. It's true. What is one thing we'd be surprised to know about you? A habit, a freaky, a freaky secret, Ooh. you name it. I mean, honestly, I think it is the fact that I was the lottery announcer on television in Mexico and I could literally <laughs> announce the lottery to you right now, even after 14 years. That's just weird and bizarre. Can and you do it? I, I want to hear it. <laughs> yes. Bienvenidos a su sorteo Trisectri Clásico. Estamos ante la presencia de la inspectora de la Secretaría de Gobernación. Estos son los números ganadores. 8, 5, 4, 7, 10. ¡Felicidades! Y recuerda que con pronósticos hay dos a los que menos tienen y más lo necesitan. ¡Juégatela con México! <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. Oh, yeah. that's incredible. It's like seared into your brain. You can sing that to your baby instead of... Uh, Instead of all of my, the winning lotto numbers, it's you're on the right track there. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, one piece of advice you'd like to pass on either something you actually learned and gleaned yourself or something that someone gave you that you're like, actually, this is some good fucking advice. Mm. One line that I say to myself all the time, it's in my book, it's on the wall in my office. It's just stuck in me. It's, they're not bumps in the road. They are the road. And Mm. I just feel like that is such a truth, whether you are a business owner or not, when shit hits the fan, you just need to know this is part of the journey and you've got to keep on rolling and not just stop there. And it's not exclusive to you. This happens to all of us and you're going to learn from it and you're going to keep on marching forward. Like do not give up, do not give in, just know that it's part of the path. I love it. I love it. So true. So where can everyone buy the book and where can everyone buy a face mask and apron, your incredible collaboration with bands, which I was just salivating over. Yes. They can go to headleyandbennett.com. They can uh, get dream first details later, wherever books are sold, but also on our website. And one fun fact about the book, it's actually the first book that Penguin Random House has done, the, a business book that's in full color. So the entire inside of it is just packed with colors and infographics. And it's a very visually digestible book. So if you're not you know, super into reading, you can also get the audio book. Anyway, it's just like a kick in the pants 
to get off your ass and start doing whatever it is you want to do and not worry about all the details as I've now described is like my life mantra. <laughs> so dream for his details later, definitely get it. Follow us on Instagram at Headley and Bennett. And mine is Ellen Marie Bennett. And to everyone out there, like this is the time we've never been in a world where life has been sort of exploded as severely as last year and things are moving and shaking in a way that they haven't in a very long time. And the seismic shift has happened. So if you have an idea and you want to go out there and get it, like go make it happen because big conglomerates are going down and little tiny ideas are blooming into really big, beautiful things. So make it happen. Awesome. I love it. Thank you so much. Congratulations on everything and have a great holiday. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you too. You're a badass and I loved chatting with you. Talk to you guys soon. I just wanted to thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I also want to ask you to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a pain in the butt, but it actually helps with search and algorithm. So if you love this podcast, it is an easy way to get it more visible and out there. I also want you to follow me on Instagram at Rebecca Minkoff at RM Superwomen and be sure to check out my book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. Thank you again and you will hear from me next week.